now let's open our Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. We're studying through the book of Jeremiah, this wonderful Old Testament prophet, major prophet. Uh, we're in chapter three. Our text is gonna start in verse six of chapter three, and we're gonna go into chapter four, verse four. The topic we'll find there, God reminds Judah what happened to her sister Israel and warns her to learn from it and turn away from sin before it's too late. The title of our message, Little Sister, Don't You Do What Your Big Sister Done. Let's have a word of prayer, especially for you Elvis fans. Father, thank you this morning for our word. Uh, I pray, Lord, that it would minister uh, to my heart and to the hearts of my brothers and sisters here and to any, Lord, who don't know you. If there's some people here, Lord, maybe even one that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come and bring that person to the cross of Jesus Christ where they can have the forgiveness of their sins and receive eternal life. The rest of us, Lord, we, we just wanna make sure that we're on track, that we're not headed for shipwreck, uh, Lord, but uh, quite the contrary, that we are filled with your spirit to overflowing so that we can affect what is a very evil and malicious world all around us. And by that, Lord, I mean people who are perishing for lack of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who, whose lives are falling apart even if they don't realize it, Lord. And, and so just fill us so that you can use us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm not gonna mention the name of the reality show here in Polite Company, but you'll know what I'm referring to. It was originally shown on MTV from 2000 to 2002 featuring people performing various dangerous, crude, ridiculous, self-injuring stunts and pranks. It went on to spawn three, three uh, theatrical movies. The concept dates back to 1999 when failing actor turned writer Johnny Knoxville thought of the idea of testing different self-defense devices on himself. I've often thought of doing that, haven't you? Uh, he videotaped himself being tasered, maced, and ultimately shot while wearing a Kevlar vest. The show featured warnings and disclaimers, noting that the stunts performed were dangerous and should not be imitated, and that recordings of any stunts would not be aired on MTV. Such warnings not only appeared before and after each program and after each commercial break, but also a crawl ran along the bottom of the screen during some especially risky stunts, as well as showing a skull and crutches logo at the bottom right of the screen to symbolize the stunt performed was risky. Nevertheless, the program has been blamed for a number of deaths and injuries involving teens and children recreating the stunts. In 2005, a 16-year-old girl was killed recreating a stunt that involved wrapping a short length of rope around the base of a merry-go-round and attaching the other end to a vehicle. The vehicle accelerated away from the merry-go-round, causing it to spin. The girl suffered fatal injuries when she was hurled 60 feet from the merry-go-round and hit the pavement. They should have heeded the warnings. Now, the unheeded warnings of a very dangerous activity are at the heart of our text. The activity is described for us as backsliding, and the warning is for the nation of Judah to not follow the example of her sister to the north, the nation of Israel, Sadly, and to her detriment, the warnings went unheeded by Judah. What about us? Will we heed warnings of backsliding? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, in every backslider, there's a warning for you to remain. And number two, 
in every backslide, there's a wooing for you to return. Let's take a look at the warning uh, in chapter three. 12 distinct sermons that Jeremiah delivered from the opening chapters, uh, or form the opening chapters of this book. His second sermon begins in verse six of chapter three, and it's gonna continue through verse 30 of chapter six. And so Jeremiah was not following our uh, habit of teaching for 35 or 40 minutes, he was just going for it. Uh, He's a long-winded guy. Now the word backsliding is used seven times here in chapter three, more than half the number of times it's used in the entire book, and Jeremiah uses the word more often than it occurs in all the rest of the Bible. It was one of his favorite words for what was happening with the nation of Judah. J. Vernon McGee has probably the best description of what it means in terms of our grasping it. He says, backsliding does not simply mean to slide backwards as we usually think of it. God gives us a vivid picture of what he means by backsliding when he tells us in Hosea chapter 4, verse 16, Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Do you have any idea what it is like to try to load calves into a truck or wagon? Of course, the answer here in the valley is yes. Uh, When I was a boy, we lived next door to a southern Oklahoma rancher. Sometimes we would go out to the ranch and help load the heifers. Do you know what they do when you try to get them up the ramp? They set their front feet and make themselves as stiff as they can. They brace themselves so that you cannot move them at all. When we would try to move them, they would start slipping backwards. That is God's picture of what it means to backslide. Backsliding is a refusal to go God's way, a refusal to listen to him. That's interesting because what we're learning here from this word is that Backsliding is any refusal, small or great, to obey the Lord. I normally think, probably like you, of backsliding as as a huge area of sin that you find yourself in, but it's really any refusal to uh, obey the Lord. It describes any area in which we prefer our own will and our own way to God's. It can be something subtle, as well as something heinous. And so in this section of scripture, God treated Israel and Judah as sisters for the purpose of warning Judah about the backsliding of her sister Israel. And so we pick it up in verse six. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, but she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. If Israel was a wife, she was an adulterous one. Every high mountain and under every green tree refer to the locations where the people of Israel worshiped the idols of Molech and Baal by participating in immoral sexual rituals and child sacrifice. When God said, I have put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, he was referring to his raising up the Assyrian empire against Israel. In about 722 BC, Israel was overrun for the final time and her people carried away captive. Now the impact of all of this on Judah 
to the south was minimal. Judah saw it, we're told, but did not fear, went and played the harlot also. Instead of being warned, Judah was a treacherous sister. And so verse nine, so it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Now in the days of King Josiah, uh, we learn that in verse six, there had been a revival. God's assessment of it here in verse nine was that it was not heartfelt, it was merely a pretense of revival. That's because the people were still behaving badly despite giving lip service to the Lord. They were still committing adultery, spiritual adultery, by worshiping stones and trees. God called it casual harlotry to indicate their attitude. There was no hiding it, there was no being ashamed of it. There was a nonchalance about them. Sure, they worship Molech and Baal, so what? You know, there used to be an attitude, uh, and and some people still have this, uh, that if you're involved in some kind of sin, you you wanna do it secretly, you you wanna hide and go places where nobody knows you, which is really difficult here in Kings County. Uh, You know, everybody knows you and and is following you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not paranoid or anything, but, uh, uh, it, but you know, it, you, there used to be a shame and, and, and people would catch you and they'd have to follow you and hire people to follow you and things like that and, and all. And what God is saying here is that they were casual harlots. They were going to the temple and worshiping me and then they'd leave there and in the afternoon say, well, you wanna worship Molech this afternoon or Baal? And they, they had no problem. Everybody knew what everybody else was doing. It was open and they saw no problem, no duplicity, no, and, and so God says, you're just nonchalant about your sin. And I mean, this has always been a problem, but I do see this more and more uh, in Christians who, whose lives are falling apart. You, you, they'll come in and say, yeah, well, I, yeah I'm, I'm involved in this sin. Really? What are you gonna do about it? Well, I'm, you know, I don't know. I know I shouldn't be doing it, but uh, you know, maybe someday I'll quit doing it. And there's no fear, there's no embarrassment, there's no shame. Uh, it, it sounds weird, but you know, uh, th- that's the, the kind of casual attitude that people are having. And so in verse 11, the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Now this is an exaggeration to make a point because Israel had not shown herself righteous in the least. But compared to the wickedness of Judah, she seemed righteous. And so you could look at Israel, they were so wicked, God raised up the Assyrian Empire to destroy them and carry them away captive. And he says, but compared to Judah, they were righteous. And that's how bad Judah had become. Judah had Jerusalem. She had the temple. She had the written word of God and it had been found and read to King Josiah. In other words, Judah had greater privileges than they had in the north in Israel. And so her backsliding was far worse. With greater uh, privilege comes greater responsibility. Now backsliding usually begins in a subtle refusal to go the way of the Lord. It can start small in, let's say, your marriage or in your family. You begin to assert your own will against God's will. It doesn't seem like you're committing some heinous sin, but the minute you start to dig in your heels, according to the illustration of backsliding, you're moving in the wrong direction. One author put it this way, he said, 
The biggest danger of all is found in our so-called little sins. Eventually they will catch up with us and inch by silent inch will drive us farther and farther away from God. As Edmund Burke said, by gnawing through a dike, even a rat may drown a nation. Now without judging others, and certainly without feeling superior to anyone, when we see another person backslide and their life end in ruin, it ought to serve as a warning to us. We should want to remain in the Lord, walking with him in a greater intimacy each day, becoming less and less interested in the things of this world and more and more captivated by the things of the Lord. And so the Lord is saying, hey, uh, you've seen what happened to Israel. And now you are not only on that same backward path, you are far worse than she. That is gonna be the consequence in your experience as well. And again, without judging anyone or certainly without feeling superior, we should be able to look at what goes on in the Christian realm and think, I don't want to go in that direction. I don't want to see my life ruined. I don't want to have to be the one that's sitting in front of my friends weeping and crying because I've lost my family and I've lost my reputation and all of that kind of thing. Uh, I I want to learn from that example and uh, remain with the Lord or certainly return. Now there's something else in the example of Israel, something really wonderful. Even after all of her terrible sin, God still said, return to me. And that's the point of the rest of our verses. In every backslide, there's a wooing for you to return. Should we sin that grace might abound? The answer to that question is certainly not. But when we sin, God's grace much more abounds. And we're thankful for that. And so in verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Now it's, it's interesting Israel had already fallen by the time Jeremiah began his ministry. I see him speaking these words to the northern kingdom after their fall when they no longer existed and no one could hear him except the people of Judah. Who was he talking to? He was talking to a future restored nation of Israel. He looked beyond many centuries, beyond even our own time, to Israel and Judah as a united nation under God in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And there's something powerful about the things that these Old Testament prophets were called upon to do. Uh, Jeremiah, if we get into his mindset here for a minute, apparently he's, he's somewhere looking to the north speaking to people of Israel that that aren't there. And if you're somebody in Judah, you're a citizen of Judah and you're following the ministry of Jeremiah, you you know this is impactful, we would say. It, it's like you maybe you think he's crazy, but it's symbolic. You'd have to think who are you talking to? Israel has gone into captivity. You must be talking to a future Israel. And here you would be getting the sense that God is promising that he is a restorative God, that he wants to bring them back to himself even though he's brought this terrible judgment upon them. And so it's, it's really a beautiful thing. 
Verse 14, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Now, this is predicting that a remnant of Jews will be preserved and brought to Zion, which we're going to see in this section as a reference to the future kingdom on earth. Now, it's remarkable, really, that God said, I am married to you. He had just said he had given them a bill of divorce. Under the law of Moses, if a husband gave his wife a bill of divorce, they could never be remarried. Deuteronomy 24, only the husband had the right to divorce the wife. And once the bill of divorce was final, there was no possibility of remarriage. But here God says, I'm going to be your husband again. He was looking beyond the law of Moses to a time when his law could be written on hearts. He would indeed take Israel back as his wife one day. And so if you're a thoughtful Jew listening to Jeremiah talk and he's speaking for God saying, return to me as my wife, this would blow your mind because this was against the law of Moses. Not so much against from our perspective as beyond it. It looks beyond the time of the law to a time of grace when God would restore his people. Any doubts Jeremiah was describing the future kingdom should be dispelled in the next three verses. Verse 15, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's time. God was talking about a time when he would personally dwell among his people, not in the Ark, not just his glory, but seated on the throne. That time when all the nations of the earth shall be gathered to Jerusalem is when Jesus Christ returns in his second coming. And so we're reading prophecy from the sixth century that looks beyond our own day and age to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the promise of the establishing of a thousand-year kingdom on the earth. Verse 18, in those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. And so happier days are ahead for Israel and Judah. It will take the great tribulation to accomplish it, but God will preserve a remnant from both Israel and Judah and they will be a united nation again at the end of that time at the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me father and not turn away from me. And so God is speaking. He says, how am I going to do this in light of all of your sin? And you know, how can I, how can I set aside the law of Moses and write my law on your heart? Uh, well, he would do it by the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. Not only will the Lord ultimately rule and reign, but the Jews will finally be able to call God Father. In other words, in the future kingdom, they're going to enjoy an intimacy with the Lord that they never have, but which we today do by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, you and I 
uh, as Christians, we call God Father, and this is not a privilege that the Old Testament Jew had. There wasn't really a father-son relationship in, in that kind of intimacy. And so the Lord is saying, how am I gonna do all this? Well, I'm gonna create a brand new relationship with my people Israel. And of course, we know because we have hindsight from reading the New Testament that he's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ and his being raised from the dead uh, and his being able to write his law on their hearts. Now, verses 20 through 25, I think we see a dramatization of Jewish repentance at the second coming of Jesus. So let's read them. Verse 20, surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping in supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God, Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, even from our youth, even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. When they see the Lord, they will see, the Bible, say, or they will, the Bible says, look upon him whom they have pierced. These future Jews, preserved through the great tribulation, will recognize Jesus at his second coming as their savior and Messiah. So I see this as God looking ahead, he's, the tribulation is ending, Jesus is returning, and the living Jews, the remnant of Jews, will see him, they will recognize him as their savior, they will repent and receive him, uh, and the Lord will establish his kingdom. Verse one, if you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. And so this is obviously millennial. Uh, it is the time in the future when Israel be united, both Israel and Judah called Israel, and the nations of the world will bless themselves in him, that is Jesus Christ. Now, in verses three and four, we're gonna return to the nation of Judah to her situation in the sixth century BC. None of this is odd if you read, if you're familiar with, uh, especially the Old Testament, you know that oftentimes the prophets uh, are talking about a contemporary situation, and then the next thing you know, they'll be talking about a prophecy far, far in the future, and then they'll return to talking about what's going on. It's kind of interesting because in the New Testament, I think it's in Peter's epistle, he says that sometimes the prophets didn't really understand what they were prophesying. They didn't know everything that uh, they were talking about, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were accurate to record it. And, and we have a, a wonderful knowledge that they didn't have because we uh, have the completed Bible, we have the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, we have the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, and so we can understand these things. And so now we're returning to the present situation in verses three and four. 
For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Now the treacherous sister, backsliding Judah, is first compared to fallow ground. Fallow ground is simply hard soil that must be plowed before it can receive seed. J.R. Miller wrote, God himself does a great deal of plowing. His word is a plow. It cuts its way into men's lives, crushing the heart, revealing sinfulness, producing penitence. It finds men impenitent and leaves them broken and contrite, confessing sin and asking for mercy. Now, we mentioned earlier how that the word of God had been rediscovered and read during the reign of King Josiah. And if you follow that story, it, it, it had the effect of plowing up fallow ground. There was the beginning of a revival. But the revival under Josiah stopped short. We read a minute ago that it was only a pretense. Why? Ask a farmer and he'll tell you that any thorns which are weeds, must be removed or they will grow alongside the crop and choke it out. A sixth century farmer would understand weeds and stumps and rocks that needed to be removed. It was hard work but necessary if a harvest was to be expected. So there's a plowing to break up the fallow ground, but that's not the end of the work. There's weed control, there's rocks that need to be uh, moved and stumps that need to be pulled out if a harvest was to be expected. And that is where Judah fell short. They kept in their lives the love of the world and the worship of its idols and those weeds choked out the word of God. And so God, in a sense, brought revival. The word of God brought revival. They hadn't been reading the word of God. They didn't even have the word of God. And then they found it in the temple and say, hey, look at this. It's the word of God. And there was a revival that broke out, but it didn't last. It didn't take root. It didn't produce lasting fruit because there were still these weeds and stumps and stones and all that the people personally and individually didn't deal with. And so God reveals and we must respond. As the word plows, God shows us weeds and stumps and rocks that hinder his harvest. And then we need to follow through with his grace and in his strength and be willing to deal with those things, to remove them. Right now, as we're speaking, is the Lord prompting you about something? See, this is what happens. You, you sit under the teaching of the word of God or maybe you're just reading it for yourself and God's word is plowing things up and maybe he shows you something. Maybe he's showing you something right now, some habit, some person, something. Something you're doing, something you're not doing. Something you've been meaning to do. Something you've been meaning to not do. And, and God shows it to you and he says, I'm plowing up the soil of your heart, turning over that soil so that I can plant something in there that's going to bear wonderful fruit, but this is a rock, this is a weed, this is a stump. What are you going to do about it? And sometimes we just don't do anything about it. We, we settle for the plowing. We think, oh, wow, that plowing, man, that felt really good. I feel all plowed up but I'm still gonna keep with this habit that I have in secret or in public or whatever. I, I don't, you know, God kind of was talking to me about that, but eh, you know, I can rationalize that. Uh, I, eh, you know, if God doesn't want me to do it, he'll strike me dead. 
He might, but probably not. Uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And so that's where that's, you know, as J. Vernon McGee would say, that's where the rubber meets the road. We don't act on the plow. We just keep thinking, well, this section of my field is plowed, so seed is going in there. I like this stump. This is a great stump. I've been dealing with this stump my whole life. I've decorated this stump. It's a beautiful stump or rock or whatever. You, You get the analogy, right? I don't have to belabor it. And so that's where Judah fell short. Oh, revival, yes, let's keep the law. Let's go to the temple. I've got an appointment with Molech this afternoon. I'm sure there's no conflict there because I really do love the Lord. And you know what? When we're sinning, we really do love the Lord. But we need to weed these things out of our lives. Just act on it. Now, backsliding Judah is next told in verse four, circumcise uh, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Now, they were already physically circumcised, of course. They had performed the outward ritual as required by the law of Moses, but God never meant for them to think that circumcision as a ritual meant anything. It was always symbolic of the need to be circumcised in their hearts. There's a spiritual circumcision that the physical circumcision was a picture of. Now, we don't have these kinds of rites and rituals, thankfully, But it doesn't mean we can't become superficial. The things we do, devotions, Bible study, reading the Bible, having fellowship, even serving the Lord or sharing Jesus with others, all of that can become an outward form of religion without inward godliness, without a pursuit of holiness. And so in the end, I'm gonna have to allow God's word to turn me inside out. As one pastor put it, What you are when you're alone, that alone you are. And that's something that each of us knows. You and I know what we are when we're alone. And that's what we are. Uh, And so if God needs to turn us inside out uh, and make some adjustments, let him. So let's get alone with God, plow and prepare, cut away any remaining flesh. Then you can go around turned inside out in order to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.